Welcome to Illumination by Modern Campus. Through this series, we speak to higher education thought leaders about the trends, ideas, and opportunities that are shaping the future of this industry and pick their brains for best practices and advice that leaders can apply to their own institutions. On today's episode, Evolution Editor-in-Chief and Illumination host Amrit Alawalia sits down with David Gable, the president of Excelsior College. Recorded live at the UPSIA conference in Orlando, Florida, David and Amrit sit down to discuss the choices institutions have around continuing education and how global issues are impacting curriculum development. All right, well, David, thank you so much for joining us on the Illumination podcast. Uh, we're here at Opsia in uh, Orlando, and, you know, it's, it's amazing seeing the growth in the continuing ed space over the past few years. So thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for asking. So you've moved through some really interesting pathways in your career. You built UW Flex uh, as part of that team at the UW system. You went to Marquette and took over their digital learning initiative, and now you're the president at, at Excelsior College. Can you walk through that path a little bit? I mean, how's, how's that career transition gone for you? It's been great. Um, I, you know, I, I went through the traditional academic route uh, when I was in graduate school and thought I would go into teaching and, and basically stay a faculty member. But I got lured into administration early on at Northwestern and just uh, fell into adult and continuing ed. It <laughs> like everyone. Like everyone else. <laughs> And so, uh, so it's just been a journey and always have looked for new challenges and uh, new ways to make impacts on adult students. And so I've been very fortunate to have the career path that I've had. Absolutely. And Excelsior is a pretty perfect fit for someone who wants to focus on, on building out uh, education access for adults. It is. So when you think about the, the space, the continuing ed space, obviously there's historically it's kind of lived on the periphery of most institutions. They tend to have to replicate everything themselves. It tends to live in a silo. That's not really the direction that we're moving as an industry, though. So what kinds of changes are you seeing in terms of the way that continuing education is being integrated into the way the institution itself works? Well, I think so. One of the things that's clearly changed over the past decade or so, maybe a little more, is that uh, continuing it is no longer the ugly stepchild of the no. institution. It yeah. is now mainstream education. Um, and you know, as, as you well know, during the COVID pandemic, there mm -hmm. are now more than a million fewer college students. That's exactly, yep. And so everybody is competing for the market. Mm -hmm. um, and it's shrinking. And it's shrinking. And, and it's shifting uh, in terms of the geographic densities uh, in the US. Yep. And so the competition is stiff and institutions don't, most institutions don't have the luxury of uh, being as selective as they used to be, no. especially in terms yeah. of age. Well, you know what's interesting about that? And sorry, I realize I'm interrupting you here. Is the story came out not that long ago about how for the most elite band of institutions, their acceptance rate went down over the last two years, while at the same time there's a million fewer students everywhere else. I mean, what's amazing is that you have so many institutions trying to replicate that model of the elite institutions. The elite institutions haven't been touched by any of this, but it really starts to drive home. There's foundational differences between that top elite band of R1s and, and the rest of the market. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And what we're seeing across the country is a lot of schools uh, really struggling, uh, some schools uh, going out of business, yes. a lot of mergers and acquisitions and other kinds of uh, deep partnerships. 
So the the field is changing a lot, and mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think once you get out of the R1 realm, uh, it's a whole different world. Time to get creative. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, so on that topic, and you know, we're obviously we're sitting here. It's the big. What day is it? Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday. <laughs> and uh, so we, uh, the Evolution and UPSIA partnered this year on, on our annual State of Continuing Education report. It's a report we've been putting, putting out for the last three years to try to give some, some numbers, put some numbers behind the, the transforming continuing ed space. And what we really found jumped out at us at this year's report is there's increasing pressure on continuing education to contribute to the relevance, the competitiveness, the transformation of the institution proper. But there's a lack of resources when it comes to how continuing education divisions are actually able to execute on that vision. I mean, a few numbers that jumped out at me, only 46% of respondents knew what their enrollment number was last year. Something like 30, 35% of respondents said that they're, uh, or no, sorry, 12% of respondents said that they're staffed appropriately to, to, to hit the numbers that they're expected to hit. I mean, how do we start to transition continuing education from being supported to, you know, being actually supported? Well, it's a good question. I think uh, we're still fighting the culture wars yeah. uh, at a lot of institutions, and uh, there is there's no question that most faculty, especially in a uh, in a tenured environment, mm-hmm. um, have a very specific mindset about what higher education ought to be. Yep. And uh, they want to teach students who live on campus that they can impact over a four-year period, not over just a few months or a year or something like that. Exactly. And um, and there there is that kind of higher ed romanticism that runs (laughs) uh, among many academics and among many administrators. So it's very hard to want to give away more to the adult ed side. That's fair. Because, I mean, there's still a level of protectionism. And if adult ed is generally going to be revenue neutral, there's some questions around why resources are being spent in an area that's supposed to generate its own revenue. But that's kind of the top line of scale. Yeah, um, it is. Uh, I think, uh, again, it, it ultimately boils down to culture. And, uh, and, and as we know, you know, culture trumps everything every single time well let's i mean let's pivot that direction right because on the topic of culture when we talk about the mission of a modern post-secondary institution and obviously this isn't all-encompassing but i'd say if you asked almost anyone working at any post-secondary institution they'd point to access to community impact to growth as, as being significant parts of their mission when you think about the work that continuing ed does and i mean certainly reflecting back on your own experience how can we bring continuing ed into the fold to start driving at that mission in, in more active and conscious ways? So I think that at many institutions, the access language is uh, uh, just that. Um, <laughs> there is, and, and we see it in the rankings, right? Yeah. There's this crazy schizophrenic approach where what um, a lot of higher ed institutions want to do is they want to provide access in, in the sense that they want a lot of students to apply. Right, and then they want to turn most of them away. Yep, because country clubs them, and higher ed institutions. Because that helps them raise uh, raise up in the rankings. And unfortunately, if that's going to be the mentality, then it's not about access; it's about exclusivity. Yep. Um, and uh, and and so a lot of schools continue to play that game. How do you look at access? I mean, how do we how do we measure? How do we actually support access in a way that's more meaningful? Well, because access is, it's difficult to afford accessibility. It is difficult. 
Um, uh, this country has never had a national higher education policy. It's never had an education policy, let alone a higher ed policy. True. And education has always been relegated to the states. The only stick and carrot uh, at the same time that the U.S. Department of Education has is Title IV. Right. Uh, that's it. And so uh, there's very limited amount of influence that uh, large bodies can have. And so, so you quickly uh, go back to the, the culture wars at the institution. Interesting. And the, the, um, the, the uh, reward model for faculty is not set up on inclusivity and access. Mm -hmm. um, the, the teaching model is not set up on inclusivity and access. Not at all. I mean, that, let's, I want to get into that a little bit too, because this is when we talk about creating a future ready institution, every institution really does have a different role, a different purpose. And there's, you know, a balancing act that we need to strike between research and teaching, between access and revenue. How can, I don't think we can speak in broad, in broad sweeping statements, but if we take that back a step, how do you figure out where you sit in that quadrant? Because, you know, you have to, each institution really has to make its own choices around how accessible are you going to be? How focused are we on revenue growth? How, like, how, how can you as a post-secondary institution or leader sit down and say, okay, here's where we're going to sit. Here's where we're going to focus. Yeah. Well, so first of all, I don't think you can be everything to everybody. No. And so you need to figure out what market segment you're going to serve and then make sure that you do it well and you provide <laughs> what, the, what that segment needs, right? right? So if you're serving 18-year-olds, uh, your main job is to help them grow up. And, uh, and hopefully they'll learn stuff along the way, but really they're to grow up. Right. If you're serving 35-year-olds, uh, your main job is to help them transition to most likely better career uh, opportunities. But for many of them, uh, certainly at Excelsior, for many of our students, it's also uh, setting an example for their families. Most of yep. them are first generation and they really want to show that they can do it so that they can tell their kids You're you creating can do a it. culture of going to college yeah. yeah yeah that i mean that's fascinating and that's i mean that's so impactful because that's where you start to see well how are we building our communities how are we contributing to you know reducing a town gown divide when you're at excelsior i mean it's an adult focused institution it's always been oriented around access is there still a town gown divide that you guys are trying to navigate with uh you're in albany right yeah we're in albany but remember we're an online institution very true so uh we don't so have the town is harder to define <laughs> town is harder hard to define um so our uh, our neighbor down the street is uh SUNY at Albany. Right. So they fight the battles that you're talking about. Got right? it. But for you guys, there's really an understanding about the impact that you have on, on the students you serve, on the communities you engage. Well, we have the, the benefit and the luxury of being a continuing ed institution. So True. we do not have the internal uh, conflicts that a lot of schools have between trying to focus on research dollars and trying to focus on uh, elite students and also trying to focus on adult and continuing ed. True. We don't have that. You're teaching that, oriented. Yeah. yeah. So that's fascinating. As you start to think about, you know, again, your, you know, your background and your career, kind of where you are right now, there's always been a digital component to the work you do. So how do you define sort of the your average institution will put out a community impact report where they're able to talk to, you know, the university generates X in GDP or whatever for, for the community we serve. Is it possible to do a similar metric for an institution focused on online ed? 
Yeah, I think so. Um, a lot of it is about outcomes. Um, it's about uh, following students after they graduate, mm -hmm. uh, figuring out what they need to graduate because there, there are almost no students that come to Excelsior who don't already have credits. And Got it. so, so we're basically we're a transfer school. They come to us. They want us. They, most of our students have a bag of credits from multiple institutions, maybe ACE credit, maybe military credit. Right. The community college down the street, the the four-year school that where the student didn't succeed five years ago, that right. kind of stuff, right? And then, so they throw the bag of credits and they say, help us make sense out of this. Right. So our job is really to help them uh, make sense out of it and help them see a pathway in a clear way, not confusing, yep. not here's 50 different electives that here's you can your take. Roadmap. Here's what you do yeah. to get, because that's what they want to know. They, yep. they want to know what do I have to do, how much is it going to cost, and how long is it going to take? Yes. That's what they want to know. Yep. That's, so as you think about the industry as it is today, you've, we've obviously significant change since, since we launched the evolution 10 years ago. Over the course of your career, there's a significant amount of transformation over that time. You now find yourself as, well, find yourself, you've earned the role of president of a pretty significant post-secondary institution serving a wide range of people. What are the trends you're watching? What are the things that are interesting to you? Um, I always pay a lot of attention to what's going on outside of education, actually. Okay. And so I, I think from a, from a program development perspective, we, we have to take climate really seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, in, it, if for no other reason than it it's going to impact about half of the global population yep. because half of the global population lives within 200 miles of a coastline. Yep. And so, so there's going to be population displacements, there's going to be food shortages, uh, there are going to be national security issues, there's going to be risk management, there's going to be a lot of stuff that's going to be different yep. 10 to 20 years from now than what's going on today. Absolutely. Um, I think the the... the the escalating culture wars in this country and the idea of social justice yep. are huge. We have to be aware of it. Yep. Not going away and probably not going to get better anytime soon. And then and one other thing I'll yeah. say is, and then there's the systemic poverty issue, yes. which actually I think underlies the culture wars because it makes people feel uh, powerless and uh, hopeless. Yes. And, uh, and those feelings uh, are not... Uh, tied to any particular skin color. No. And so when we look, for instance, uh, at Appalachia, that is a region uh, that uh, uh, is completely ignored by the, the public. Yes. It extends over 14 states. Uh, over 25 million people live in Appalachia, and hmm. yet we, as higher ed, never talk about it. No. No, you're right. So this is, you know, as you think about that, as you think about these topics, I mean, it's not necessarily about creating a course or a program. Like, it's not about trying to convince people. That it's, it's about embedding these principles and ideas into almost everything the institution does. Where do you start? Well, so great question. I, again, I think you start locally and yeah. you reach out, right? And um, one of the biggest uh, concerns that I have about the direction of higher ed over the past 10 years is that we... Uh, talk almost exclusively now about skill development yes. and not about knowledge growth or, people or development. human development. Yeah. And, um, and it's because teaching skills is easy. 
teaching people to lead better lives is a long game, and it's much more complicated. There's connectivity there, but they're not the same. No, they are not the same. But that's it's prim- it's partially a function of demand, though. I mean, a, a learner isn't yeah. necessarily enrolling in an institution with the idea of you know I want to become part of a, a, a you know an, an educated citizenry. When they look at post-secondary institu- uh, institution, when they look at post-secondary education, it's it's very significantly with the purpose of, of getting a job. So, do we have to change the way that we talk about higher education broadly, or is it more about you know starting to slip in aspects of the citizenry piece into programming designed for career outcomes? Well, so it's a great question, and it, it in my mind goes back to culture, but this time it's national culture. Fair enough. And uh, and and so uh, so we have this big divide about the value of education in general. Yes. Um, and uh, you know the, one of the big ironies, and I've heard this for thirty years in my career in higher ed, is that um, when you ask employers, what is it that you want your employees to know, the answer all invariably is the same. We want them to be good communicators. Yes. We want them to know how to identify problems. Yes. Uh, we want them to be able to get along with one another. Right. Mm-hmm. These are all just basic cognitive skills yep. uh, of of well functioning, uh, uh, emotionally secure human beings. Yep. And yet, that's not what we teach. No. Not directly. We we think that through osmosis and uh, <laughs> students are somehow magically going to pick it up. Yeah. Well, and the, you know, this is, brings me back to one of my favorite topics. And I was, I was telling you last night, I was not blowing smoke. I'm dead serious. Whenever someone talks to me about how how to modernize the modern post-secondary institution, how to create connectivity between what we do in the liberal arts, I'm a graduate of liberal arts myself. It's about transforming the way we think about programming and, and how we recognize and credential skills. Now, you wrote a phenomenal article for the Evolution, and for anyone listening, search for David's author profile page. It will come up how to say how uh, competency-based education can save the liberal arts. I would absolutely recommend you read the article. Can you talk about that concept a little bit? I mean, how how do you see competency-based education and, and conscious skill development starting to feed its way into modernizing and and, and building out uh, liberal arts programming? Well, so it's a great question. I think uh, one of the um, the failures of the liberal arts is a lack of intentionality on uh, cognitive skill outcomes. Yes. And so if we are, if we really want to make sure that our students are competent, strong communicators, not just that they're able to write a paper, not just that they're able to talk to somebody, but across multiple platforms, then you have to make sure that you uh, develop the curriculum and the assessment process accordingly so that you Mm -hmm. have evidence and reason to believe that the students are actually learning what it is that you're trying to teach them. Same thing with problem solving, same thing with team building, blah, blah, right. blah, right? And so we we have to, first of all, we have to, I think, chunk up the curriculum differently than in these make-believe three-credit courses that by themselves don't, <laughs> they, they don't yeah. mean anything, right? It's it's a fiat of, of, uh, of his, uh, historical uh, ways of paying faculty. Yes. Um, and, um, and uh, we need to figure out how to help students uh, go through project-based scenarios to actually do this. Yes. I think one of the examples that I like to use is, you know, if, if, if you want to know if somebody can write a P&L statement, you don't have them write a paper about a P&L statement. You actually have them do write the P&L, P&L statement. statement. Yep. 
And so same thing with pretty much anything else. And yep. so I've always been really interested in project-based learning. Right. Um, it's, it's a great approach. It is not an easily scalable approach. No. But that's kind of the challenge. That's yeah. the rub. If we're yeah. going to personalize the education experience, we have to personalize the education yeah. experience. Right. Well, David, I've taken up enough of your time. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. I appreciate Thank you. it. This has been fun. This episode is brought to you by Modern Campus in partnership with The Evolution. Modern Campus empowers higher ed institutions to thrive when radical change is required to deal with lower student enrollments and revenue, rising costs, crushing student debt, and even school closures. Powered by the industry's only student-first modern learner engagement platform, Modern Campus supports every corner of the modern institution, from continuing and workforce education, to student affairs, to the registrar's office, to marketing and IT. To find out more on how you can transform your institution to meet the needs of the modern learner, visit moderncampus.com. That's moderncampus.com. 